out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop. And as always, we'd like a special guest. This week, it is going to be focused on big country because I spoke to the drummer, Mark Brzezinski, very recently to find out more about love, life, poetry, all that kind of stuff, and much, much more. Um, So I've got that interview, which is going to blow your mind because Mark is somebody who can really explain and talk in the most beautiful way you could ever imagine. So get your notepad and pens out because I want you to make notes. I will test you at the end of the show to make sure you have been paying attention. But before we have the interview, I think we'll play one of those classics that we loved back in the day and still do. This is Big Country and Wonderland. There you go. Classic 
pop rock that was big country and that was a track titled wonderland that came from the album steel town this is david eastall this is the c86 show at the end of the interview i will give you the contact details because we love your messages oh we really do but i think we'll have the interview this is me with mark having a chat about life and all that kind of groovy stuff anyway this is where i began with that classic opener you know tell us about the beginning of the band mark and this was his answer mark take it away yeah we we i mean shall i shall i are you ready to go yeah yeah right i, I stop me if i'm waffling too much because i'm good at waffling that may be good or bad yeah that's fine um yeah pretty much um uh, i was in a band in fact i'm around that person's house now simon townsend's house I was in a band with Simon Townsend and Tony Butler, who's the original bass player of Big Country. Um, Simon's Pete's brother, as you know, and um, we had a band called On The Air. On The Air was a three-piece kind of power pop band. But just to go back quickly, because it's important the way my drum style is and the way Tony's bass playing was, we were from London, and um, we were in a prog rock band with Simon Townsend. It was like a five-piece Genesis-esque type of band. In fact, we had the Genesis Road crew uh, come and watch us play at the Golden Lion for many years. And we were well advanced. We were kind of like a rush. Uh, but as teenagers, uh, stuff still stands up really good. Amazing playing for the, for the age. Really extraordinary playing for the age group. Long story short, music, music's which, uh, the music style was changing as we had that prog rock band. And, and that's what happened, as we know, in the history of rock and roll. Um, prog rock and disco kind of got ousted by the punk revolution in the mid-70s, late-70s. And we were a product to that as well, me, Tony, and Simon. And, and we kind of changed our music to a more power punk, power pop, a bit um, policey, if I may say, and a bit jam, a bit like the jam, the police, the clash, that kind of thing. Although the musicianship was still very great in that band, and it was during that time we supported the Skids as oh. on the air. So mm-hmm. we had a we had a, uh, a relationship with with Meet and Stewart there. Uh, the band knew, you know, we knew the Skids and we supported them on that tour. And not to know what the future would be at that time, because the skids were doing their thing and we were doing ours. And then um, pretty much a couple of years later, um, or a year later or so, unbeknown to me, the skids had broken up. Um, and I was still ticking over with the, with the on-year band under different guys and doing session work. I was working with Pete at that time now, Pete Townsend with Tony on Pete Townsend solo stuff, as well as Simon. And... Um, Unbeknown to me, the skids uh, split up. Stuart Adamson had formed uh, a, a sort of writing thing, uh, and the first embers of Big Country with Bruce Watson. And they tried to couple the band together with local players. Um, it was a five-piece, including a keyboard player. Uh, cut, cutting through all the all the sort of minutiae, the details, um, they couldn't get a record deal. It was deemed that the rhythm section wasn't wasn't up to it, and the record companies were not taking it seriously. What they did say was, if you can get a good rhythm section to the manager of this, of, of this new band that was going to be Big Country, if you can get a good rhythm section, they, they would consider looking at a, a proper record deal and entertaining them um, you know, within an album deal and stuff. It was subject to getting the band right. Uh, so I happened to be working with, with Pete Townsend and Tony Butler um, in the Pete Townsend band uh, in a gig in London. I think it was in 1981. It was a right-to-work march that, that, that started off at Jarrow and ended up in Brockwell Park in North London, where Pete Townsend was headlining the festival, uh, with me on drums and Tony Butler on bass. Um, Peter Hope Evans on harmonica, and I'm, uh, I think that was the band. Um, and uh, what happened next was that in the audience was um, the manager of, of the latter manager of the Skids in their, in their later days, Ian Grant, who, who became Big Country's manager. He was putting the band together, and he was also putting a band on supporting Pete Townsend called The Members. Oh, yeah. And so The Members were uh, Ian Grant's band. Me and Tony hadn't met Ian Grant. Um, we were still with Pete Townsend and Simon and doing, doing other session work. And uh, he approached Tony and myself and said, look, I'm talking to the record label. Um, uh, I'm, I'm managing uh, Stuart Adamson, and I've got uh, his friend Bruce Watson that's our manager as well that's we're trying to get this band together called Big Countries in his early embers. Would you be into coming down to the record label at Phonogram in London, meeting everyone and having a bit of a play? So we did. I, we already said, well, we'd, we'd met Stuart a couple of years before, a year before, supporting him on the, with the skids, with our band, with Simon, obviously, with Tony. So the rest is history, really. We went down to Phonogram. 
um, we heard some demos and um, got in the studio and produced better demos and new songs. Uh, the record company were very impressed with it, signed us up immediately um, and gave us like our multi-album deal that we had at the time. Um, and um, yeah, that that was it. Big Country was born, you know, things were um, finalized with the logo, the name of the band, um, what the vision was and press and promotions. And we were kind of set on our way, really. Uh, we toured the UK um, when the Crossing songs were getting developed and written between the band and a couple of ideas that were already there with Stuart and Bruce. And um, we developed those and wrote some new songs and finished the um, Crossing album with Steve Lidewhite at Rack Studios in London. And then um, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen with the band. I mean, to be honest with you, coming from a prog rock band and hearing what Stuart was doing um, musically with Bruce, uh, it was so different. I wasn't sure it would even be successful because it was, you know, very Celtic. It had that, dare I say, the bagpipe guitar sound. And I thought, it's either going to fly because it's so different or it's just not going to fit anywhere and just nothing's going to happen. But the record company believed in it, which is good. So that gave me a lot of confidence as well as the fact that I knew the music was good, but I wasn't really sure I'd actually heard anything like it. Um, and I, I have to add my own playing to that because I, I was playing in a very different style from what I was used to. I, I kind of turned on this sort of thumping, marching feel, and I felt the music could be more stirring if I adopted a different approach to standard rock or punk drumming that perhaps, you know, coming out of the skids, they, it would have suited. But I decided to keep my my kind of interesting muso side within yes. the band. I don't know whether that's credible to say or not, but I did make an effort to try and keep it interesting on the drums because it could so easily have just been very simple, you know, doof, bang, doof, bang all the way through because, um, you know, it was, it was a different style of music to what I was used to playing. Yes. But nevertheless, I loved it because it, it meant I could, I could be original and I could develop my own thing. Um, and obviously I was still working with Tony, um, and I'd knew, know, I did get to know Stuart uh, as briefly as it was on that tour, and he was a very pleasant guy, um, and I knew he was very talented. So, you know, we, we were up and running with, with Big Country, with The Crossing, and, and, and to my surprise, it sort of went global. You know, it was, it was a whirlwind. It, it didn't stop for five or six years. You know, I never hardly got, went home, and we had the second album out, Still Town. Um, and then the third album, The Seer, and it was just one bleeding into the other, and touring and hotels and home for a very brief period and out again and TV and radio and TV and touring and hotels and you know yes. it was it was full on um, I had no time to even gather my gather my thoughts at that time to be honest I was just I never knew anything like that would happen with me involved and um you know I was surprised at pleased obviously but surprised at the success that it had pretty quickly yeah, um, but then looking back, I can sort of see it in hindsight because we were so different, and well, we were at the you know we were early eighties. We were you know late eighty one, eighty two. We when we were eighty two, where we were starting to make headway with the gigs and um, writing some of those songs and things. You know the big songs on the record. In a big country came in in nineteen eighty three, something like that, um, and the other big songs were on the album that got developed and rewritten and re-looked at by everyone, you know? So it was, it was a band effort. It, it wasn't was. just, yes. it was Stuart and Bruce's kind of, um, uh, inception as it were, but it was, it, it couldn't have, it wasn't going anywhere and it was very unlike it was that it became particularly with new songs arriving when me and Tony were in the band. So, you know, we had a, a unique chemistry of two Scottish guys, team up with two London guys, a very unlikely scenario because the last guys they were going to, you know, they tried out were local guys. As often happens in the band, you, you go local, you know, for all kinds of reasons. A, because you know them, and B, logistically, it's not a nightmare. Yes. So Big Country has always been traditionally two Scots guys and two London guys, and most people, obviously fans know that, but most people think we're all Scottish, and um, uh, it wasn't ever the case, you know. Um, and then, it, obviously, me and Tony's muso style, if you like, the busy bass lines and the busy drums, because my drums are quite busy, so I'm told, um, added a different catalyst and a different kind of style to what could have been with Big Country, you know. Yes. And it, it was one of those things that just worked. You know, we could never have envisaged putting that line up together, particularly two guys from north and the south. Uh, but it worked, you know, we... we, we 
I often said we were a bit like the bumblebee. You know, in theory, the bumblebee shouldn't really fly aerodynamically. It's the wrong size shape and the wings are too small, but apparently it flies rather well, you know. <laughs> so I kind of liken big country to kind of a really strange Frankenstein <laughs> hotspot of musicians put together, you know, yes. um, which gave it its own thing because, you know, um, we kind of got ahead of the game then because, I mean, from myself personally, some of the rhythms I was trying to do, nobody else was doing, you know. Um, I could have so easily fallen into the straightforward category, but I was trying to invent something new as, as well everyone else was in the band. You know, every single person in big country had something unique to give. Every one of them did, you know. Mm. Stuart's guitar sound to Bruce's very creative uh, sound effects and his twin guitar sound and his creativity uh, to Tony Butler's kind of John Entwistle-esque kind of bass pumping bass and um, very busy bass lines you know a lot, a lot of the bass lines in big country were uh, prog rock lines really you know thumping clonky bass with uh, some top end busy stuff you mm. know which left which left the drums exposed to be busy as well you know so yeah it's a very unique combination like i don't think anything like that will happen again you know the other bands that had that kind of quality at that time with individuality but bands like the police you know, where Copeland's playing yes. uniquely their own and Sting's voice was uniquely his own. Um, a lot of bands in the 80s had that. Not so much now. I don't hear that much extreme character in music nowadays, you know. I don't know why, but maybe it's because I'm older. Um, but I don't hear it. Um, everything's a bit generic in the mix. Everything's a bit linear in the chords, not changing much. And, um, you know, everything's sampled and programs are similar and global sharing of sound effects, you know, starting to sound very similar. Yeah. Uh, but back in the day, you know, you're at the mercy of the this recording studio you were in, the size of the room made a massive difference to the drums um, and, and the, the guys on the control, you know, the producers were, were a massive influence on how they toned, the, the, tonally the, the albums would sound. Yeah. And we were very lucky to have Steve Linnewhite who he came off the back of producing those hits with you too. Um, and he, you know, had a history with XTC and, um, you know, a host of other people. Um, he's an amazing producer. Uh, so when we worked with Steve, you know, it was a joy, really, because he was basically letting us make stuff up as we went along. I mean, it really was like that. You know, there was really no clamping down on, you know, where I've done sessions before and the producer's got a, an idea of what he wants and he steers the drummer into the drum sound and pretty much what he would like to hear as a finished product is his vision as much as Steve did have that, but he wanted to try and achieve something within the band to then let it rise to a high level, you know, by letting everyone be completely creative, mm. sound-wise and, and idea-wise, you know. Our hands were not tied at all. So yes. we had a bit of a while of time recording those songs and um, making them sound pr perhaps unique to the way they are now, you know. And it was interesting, and it was interesting because when you did your second album, which was Steel Town, which was only a year, I mean, the production quality sounded quite different and quite big. You know, there's something much more kind of lush to the to the sort of overall vibe. Well, of it. we had a few problems on Steel Town. In order, it was a bigger album, funny enough, because The Crossing paved the way for Steel Town to become number one. You know, we thought The Crossing was um, going to be the biggest album. I think it's the one that's most cherished although I think a few fans would argue with that. But, um, you know, for me, the drum sound uh, of the band, um, for me, was done at Rack Studios, which is a fantastic studio. Um, it, it was Mickey Most's own personal in-house studio in St. John's Wood in London. And the wonderful thing about that studio, particularly a lot of bands still use that room. It's a very famous room, you know, not unlike Abbey Road is for the Beatles, not that I'm comparing it, but I would say it's one of the best drum studios around. It's, it's a Georgian building that's not really been overly soundproofed. So what you've got, you've got high ceilings of wooden floors, and you've got a very, very old recording desk. It's an old API desk from the, like, the late, the, the early 70s, um, where the EQs and the sound and the tone is, and we recorded onto tape for that lovely warm compression. And with Steve Lillywhite kind of breaking new ground with miking techniques by miking the band up, you know, um, not only miking the drums close, that he would use lots of room ambient mics to create an atmosphere and, and a really powerful sound on the drums. You know, I suppose not un, not unlike Hugh Pageant and Phil Collins was doing, you know, mm. around about the same time. So there was, because obviously Steve had worked with those guys as well. So, and you too. So we had that kind of big drum sound, this grandiose drum sound with the swirling guitars, and it, it became very, very stirring, you know. 
And Rack Studios, for me, was vital to that sound. Now, after the crossing, although some of it was done at the Manor, um, at Virgin Manor House in Oxford, Richard Branson's studio, um, we, we flew out to Sweden, to Stockholm, and we went to Abbott's studio, um, the very studio where all the hits were done. The room was exactly like Abbott recorded all their stuff. In fact, the same microphones were used to record Steel Town as was uh, recorded on all the Abbott biggest hits, you know. Uh, the vocal mic was the same ones that the two girls had used, um, Frida and Agnesa. But what, the, what was different about Sweden was they were experimenting with brand new technology. And they had a 3M digital tape machine. It was still tape, but it was digital. We'd never seen anything like it. And we had a few problems. It was kind of a learning curve for the band and, and the producer with Steve Linneywhite there. When we were recording, it, it, it was giving us a few problems on playback. We were getting lots of little spikes, which would be like little ticking noises, like um, during, the, during the playback. So we had to kind of re-record the songs again and then iron out those little glitches. And then being digital, it didn't have the warmth of analog Magnetic tape, not getting too technical here, but um, most people would say with digital, you lose a lot of low end and you don't have that compression. And we were on tape, but it was the first kind of form of digital tape. Um, so Steel Town, funny enough, it really suited that production. You know, not only was the name Steel Town and we had that pounding drum sound and the, you know, the ear piercing guitars. Um, you know, industrial sounding, in fact, you know. Yes. It kind of suited it, but it was kind of by mistake. Um, so the album gets, you know, looking back at the album, some of the reviews are the album sounds quite harsh and brittle, which, which stands to reason we were on early digital tape. Um, at the same time, they say it's a fantastic sounding album because it really suits the tone and the, and the mood of the record. So it was one of those lucky combinations, you know, mm. um, of it sounding different to the crossing, um, and it got us a number one. You know, um, I still hear that it sounds quite harsh, but I kind of, it is what it is, and I and it's it's become its own sound with that album. You know, I couldn't imagine it sounding any different now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. You, we are really a product of where we record and who's pushing the faders. You know. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I always remember the mm. first. I was a big Smiths fan, and I always remember their first album just sounds still sounds really. Like it's just not there until they do. Um, I suppose it's a, it's the John Peel sessions where uh, I suppose yeah. the the producer probably dialed Griffith, you know, and people sort mm -hmm. of managed to get their sound to, to to give it that kind of quality that we know as the Smiths. But before that, it sounded really cheap and cheerful and not particularly. I don't think that riveting. But it is it yeah. is surprising how much that studio and that producer has. Very true. Yes. You know, for me um, personally, being a drummer. Um, you know, I think you can record most instruments in a small room and in a, in a in a not so luxurious studio. You know, I always say music's germ-free. You hear the music and you don't know where it's been done. You have no idea of the atmosphere. You have no idea of the size room. You have no idea what country it's been in. It's just it's germ-free. It doesn't carry that onto the music. Mm. But what it does do, it does affect the drum sound enormously, and the drum sound being kind of the the the, um, the root and the, the you know the uh, the driving force and the backbeat and the heartbeat of the band, you know, the foundations, if the drums aren't sounding right, it can tip everything else up on top, no matter how good it's recorded. You know, you could go into Abbey Road and record all the vocals and guitars and go into a cheap studio and put the drums on. It would sound like a demo. Mm, yes. You go true. in a good studio and you put good drums on. You can go into a cheap studio and put all the other stuff on, DI this and go straight in. It sounds like an amazing record. So for me... Um, and most producers I talk to, the drum sound is very vital to a, to a band's identity and to the band's foundations for what sits on top and how well it sits. Yes. Um, and Rack Studios was, was, was my favourite studio. Um, still is, really. Um, and I, but I did like the Abba Studio for the fact that as much as I was a little bit like, I, my God, it's sounding a bit hard and top-endy and a bit piercy. <laughs> Uh, it kind of suited the track in hindsight. You know, mm. It was a mistake, really, not a mistake. It was um, just, just the way it, it was recorded by mm. the, um, the position we were in. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, yeah, but, but the a bit other thing... There, but <laughs> no, no, it's, it's kind of interesting, because I, I just sort of remember 
you know, because I was, you know, when I heard the first album by Big Country, I was like, you know, you, mm. you had a lot of kind of, I suppose, instant sort of anthemic kind of hits, and it was kind of instantly kind of one of those, a bit like, I suppose, some of those classics from people like you 2 and Simple Minds at that sure, time. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. they, they were real anthems that you just kind of, you got into as a teen and a person well, in Well, at the, the 20s. time we started was, um, you know, as much as you 2 were like leading breaking new ground with being a guitar band at a time it was very popular to be a keyboard synthy kind of band oh, yes, which this is true. I always liked you know from Depeche Mode to yeah. the New Order and all that stuff which I, I love all that stuff anyway yes. but um, uh, for us we were we almost thought like we're standing alone here being a nonsense band four piece band classic lineup, to, yes. you know two guitars bass and drums um, but then you know our cohorts like you 2 and um you know, then there was Simple Minds um, and then The Alarm and ours, us. You know, we were like a, yeah. a an, un, an unwritten, but we knew we were in, in our own little group. You know, we, we kind of acknowledged and, 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 and referenced each other in interviews and realized that we were sort of singing off the same hymn sheet, the three, the four bands, really. We, we had a, a, an empathy for each other's musical style. Um, and we were, you know, became good friends with all those bands so much so that Mike Peters ended up singing for us after we lost Stuart 10 years later you know sure. uh, um, he would be singing for us yeah yeah and one thing I you know I've noticed in all these interviews and and you're slightly different is that mm. most bands have this five-year arc you know they do the they get together they realize they've made a sound that's kind of going to be more interesting than just playing to their friends in a pub so they you know in in the sort of say the 80s they then do you know john peel would pick it up he'd play it they'd do a session do the album do the we tour did sessions, yeah. yeah you did john peel but then it was often the second album problem and there was also the touring problem that especially if anybody yeah. ever done and did america you know that seemed to kill most bands and the second album was often the one that's fraught but you sort of sailed through that period of your early you know years. it's because we didn't stop i mean i'm I must admit, sorry to cut you in there, I remember um, talking to Stuart and the band about this, you know, there was a, there was a demand and, and, a, and a bit of pressure to get a second album together and we were still, you know, we had the rest of the world to still <laughs> fulfil the crossing because, you know, we hadn't really, it, it went really global, you know, we were um, Grammy, you know, Grammy nominated for In a Big Country and we flew out to you know, Michael Jackson Theatre in LA and we didn't win but we got nominated Best New Song and Best New Artist, you know. Yeah. Um, so we were doing amazing business out there, but there was a commitment to do another album. And what we had w within Big Country was we had what was called a think tank. You know, was any ideas that we had were, were obviously done on home demos. But what we would do if there was any downtime in the studio, particularly me and Bruce, we would go into you know Studio B and um, rough out the think tank ideas. And then in between Stuart doing his vocals while he's recording the crossing or the steel town album whatever he would come and uh, get involved while tony's putting his bass on so we kind of had we were kind of leapfrogging doing one album whilst recording some masters and some demos at the same time for the next album you know um which was good really because we, it kept our timeline good you know Mm. Uh, but it was. It, I remember. I remember. You know, there was the usual panic of, "Oh my God, we've got to get another album together." We haven't really, you know, finished touring this the first album because yes. <laughs> the world's such a big place. Well, it's um, interesting because obviously, you know, and I mentioned the Smiths. I mean, it seemed mm. to me that the Smiths were like, if you were a member of the Smiths. You were there 24-7 and you never had another life. And it kind of then kind of exploded or imploded at the end, you know, in, in sort of 87. So obviously by the, 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 the schedule that you also had, you know, you were bringing out an album a year or mm. all 90, no, 86 and then mm. 88. So you were, you were also in that band 24-7 without... We still know. have problems though, you know, I'm not going to glamorise it too much, but, um, you know, nobody really went home to see their families um, and, uh, you know... It was tricky because we were we were living out of each other's pockets. You know, we were. I mean, I never saw my family or anyone. I, you know, nobody saw anyone really, other than a few days here and there. And you know, these became this was our family. We were a very close knit band, living in you know sharing hotel rooms and drinking and sleeping and tour busing and rehearsing. You know, there was no let up. Yes. Uh, but it, it kind of became the norm. I kind of got a bit kind of used to it, to be honest. Um, I don't know what to liken it to, but um, like nothing I'd experienced before, I, got, I just kind of went with it and thought, 
you, you didn't really notice that it was getting more and more crazy because, and it did get crazy, a little bit like the light fading in the evening. You don't know it's getting dark till it's got dark. You know, mm. you don't actually see the increments happen. And likewise with the band, it was it, it, it was just more work on top of more work and more tours on more tours and recording. And, you know, it became the norm. Nobody really said, oh, well, now and again, we did have the, let's let's stop the world, I want to get off, you know, and, and probably those periods were the time where, say, like Stuart would say, look, I've not seen my family for three, four months. I need to go home, you know. So at that time, we were in those situations where rather than in ex- continue and explode further down the line, we kind of halted our our career as such on those, on those, on those moments of being able to uh, go home and become normal again, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a couple of tours that we didn't do because of that, because, you know, there was a need to, to, to go and see your family, you know, not from my side personally, because I was single. Uh, but I know Stuart, um, particularly, you know, he had a son and um, he hadn't seen him for a, a long time and his wife and they would fly out and be on the tour bus and then go home and wouldn't see them for another few months you know it it was pretty it was pretty difficult for those guys that had family and and, and wives at that time um and we did stop now and again to 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 address that situation and i think that kind of slowed us down in 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 certain ways and perhaps took some opportunities away in hindsight but we can't have everything you know because we would have probably exploded in the end anyway you know i I mean look what happened to the band you know we lost Stuart. yeah in 2001 you know um yeah and well, I suppose you know, having sort of watched a lot of music rock documentaries, I suppose when I've you know listened to Lemmy from Motorhead talking, I mean, he just sort of was quite matter of fact, is that you either you you had to be single and just decide that was it and be in music because trying to juggle it, as you said, you know, if you're single and you're in the band, that's fine. But yeah. if, you're, if you're trying to be in the band doing that and then trying to go home, most people I know that have survived or not survived, you know, I was I was involved in the cult as well on that love album, you know, where their drummer was he he imploded. In fact, he passed away, Nigel Preston, and he was becoming so unreliable. The cult called me up to do the video for She Sells Sanctuary, and then they were they were timeline to go straight in the studio for their. Um, debut album, the Love album, which which they asked me to continue with, which I was able to do. I went into a studio very quickly and knocked those songs out. And they were set on their way uh, with a replacement drummer after I recorded the album. And sadly, Nigel Preston passed away. Um, but yeah, it, there are there are lots of pressures on bands to to deliver. And you know, I can't remember the question now. But I'm waffling. Well, I, um, I think it was it was that thing that you know, like I was saying about Lemmy. It was always matter of fact that you know there's just no way you can have a you can't do rock and roll and be in a relationship. What we all say is, and that's what I was going to say, is anyone will tell you that's done it and been there and and you know had, had good, bad, and the ugly, seen it all, is that you cannot do this part time. If you're going to be in a band, it's a full time commitment. You know, it is it is pretty much like a, a marriage. You've got to work at it. You've got to keep it together. You know, you've got to. Uh, you know, it, it's a relationship at the end of the day, you know, with, with three other guys. And you've got to make it work. You've got to, you, you've got to be tactful. You've got to be enthusiastic. You've got to, <laughs> you know, it's, you don't fall out. If you argue, you've got to get on with it because you've got to be on stage. You know, there's, there's lots of psychology involved. And, yes. you know, I could do a whole, whole lesson on how to survive a band. Um, <laughs> yes. But it's a family at the end of the day. It is. Um, and obviously, uh, especially especially when you're young and you're young and a bit crazy, you know, which every every young person is, uh, you know, once you grow up, you're a bit more settled than you, you know, everyone's wise in hindsight. But, you know, they were very heady days back then, and, you know, you know, people were staying up late drinking, and you become nocturnal in the studio, you know, where you you end up playing the songs in the studio, and then. The producer says, yeah, let's carry on. And you're working at three in the morning, then you get up at midday and it carries on. You end up working, starting at midnight, <laughs> finishing, finishing at nine in the morning, you know. So you've got you to gotta, you gotta kind of keep a sense of um, sensibility when you're doing this stuff. And a good producer will try and maintain that. I know Steve was really good at doing that. But when you're young, you know, you think you're, you know, you're going to live forever and you think you can, you, can, you can cope with everything. But, you know, it does take its toll. Yeah. Well, obviously, you, you know, you, you're in a really unfortunate position of um, losing Stuart. So, I mean, you must have sort of realised that something was going off the rails quite a long time before, you know, he eventually killed himself. 
Well, we knew that Stuart was vulnerable to, um, um, you know, he, he was a very passionate man and, um, you know, not seeing his family was always a concern of us, of, of the band, because, uh, you know, he was very close to his family and um, it was just, the separation was something that really tortured him a lot, you know. Uh, I think it, it was ironically a catalyst of some of his good songs, you know, part of that. You know, often when you're, when you're suffering, you write good songs. Um, but it's not a trade-off that I would want, really. But, um, yeah, um, you know, it's funny because I don't want to get too many details about this because, you know, he was out of sight, out of mind because at the time, Stuart, he'd moved to America, he'd moved to Nashville, and um, he was uh, divorced and remarried, um, you know, Whatever the story behind that is, I'm sure that you know, being in a rock band took its toll on on anyone's relationship. Um, but he got remarried, and uh, you know we didn't see him much, really. To be honest, he was writing with another guy called Marcus Hummond. Um, part of the record company said, you know, it would be good exercise to take a break and to, and, you know, reinvigorate yourself with another songwriter to sort of, you know, that's what they often do is they team you up with somebody else. And Marcus was quite quite a leveling force, you know. It was almost a Christian-based music. And um, so, uh, they wrote some really great stuff together, actually. In fact, I did do one tour with them together, which was a really great tour. Uh, but later on, I mean, it was it was all falling apart for Stuart, you know. And I wasn't really there. I was busy out here doing stuff and doing a lot of session work and things while he was out there. And, um, you know, you lose touch, you know, different time difference and 6,000 miles away. Um, weeks were turned into months before we sort of spoke and, you know, mm. it was a tricky period. You know, we were still flying out there to do demos and things, um, but it was making everything very slow, you know, with with, with one member living in another country. Um, and it kind of deteriorated from there, you know. I don't really know the ins and outs, you know. I, I tend to know, I was out of sight, out of mind with that. And, uh, you know, he didn't really reach out to anyone, Stuart, and he, he was a very private man and he kept things to himself and... Um, I always felt he was very capable, but he also had a, you know, he he also was, um, he he was, it was very known now, but he did have a drink problem, you know, during that period. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, yeah. So yes, I know it's awful, but then yeah, he, you know, he, as you know, you know, he 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 went missing, and then family couldn't get in contact with him. And then he was then he was around again, and he went missing again, and you know, it was really. You know, we were look, we were really looking at family getting involved, um, which they were, to try and, you know, reach out to Stuart and, um, you know, just to just try and make things right with whatever was going on out there. But I was as surprised as anyone else when when I heard the bad news, and you know, pretty shocked at the time, and still am. You know, losing like losing a brother. Yes. So yeah, you know, time heals, but you never really get over it. You know? No, definitely not. Which is why we stopped for a, quite a while because, um, you know, he was such an important, uh, pivotal member of the band with main songwriter and guitar and sound and everything um, that we stopped for oh goodness, eight, eight, seven or eight years and um, let the dust settle, and then we kind of reformed with a three-piece um, called BBW Brzezicki Butler Watson. Yes. And it didn't, it, it, as great as it was, we did a mini EP and we enjoyed that kind of three piece, which I, you know, I came from the on the air thing, which was a three piece. And I always liked the jam and the police as a three piece. There's something quite special about that. But it didn't really work with Big Country because of the twin guitars and the, the, the real strong lead vocals that, that Stuart had, you know. Yes. Um, so we kind of knocked that on the head and drifted around for a bit. And then um, everyone else took day jobs, which I didn't do. I was in Progal Harem for quite a long time during that period. And doing other sessions, I was I was still working with Simon Townsend and Pete. Um, went out on tour with Tears, um, did some stuff with Tears for Fears, Ultravox, a ton of stuff, ton of <laughs> stuff to keep myself busy. And then we we kind of reformed when it looked like a really good idea to to get Mike Peters involved. He you know he was a huge fan as much as we were of his music. Yeah, uh, he got involved with us to. Um, reignite the band with Jamie Watson on guitar, Bruce's son, and Tony Butler on bass. So we went out and recorded the album The Journey um, with Mike Peters and um, had a great time doing that. We did an American tour. Um, it was kind of like starting again, to be honest with you. You know, the gigs are very small and there was a smaller fan base, but we'd been away for a long time. And what with Stuart no longer being in the band, 
most people didn't even realize we still existed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so it's kind of like starting again with Mike, although we had a bit of a cult following. And we've kind of gone from there. Mike was, Mike, we knew Mike would be temporary with that because he was the alarm. It was Mike Peter's alarm. And we knew at some point he would have to go and do his thing, uh, which he did. And so we replaced Mike with a guy called Simon Hoff, H-O-U-G-H. Yeah. He was a great vocalist. Um, he's got a good history. We played with Denny Lane and a few other people. And uh, he's, he's doing a great job, you know, with the band. Um, he's not trying to be like Stuart. He's just singing the songs the best way he can. And it's a really great show with him. And we've got a guy called Scott Whitley on bass now, uh, yeah. replacing Tony, who at that time retired from the music business. But he's now back in action with a solo album, which I play on a few tracks and I did his showcase. So I still stay in touch with Tony. Oh, amazing. Gotcha. Uh, I'm waffling here. I don't know if you want me no, to No, 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 that's good. That's good. No, it's, it's, it's good. Story here. Yeah, no, it's good to hear how it all, you know, because the, the, the kind of life cycle of the band is quite extraordinary. And, and obviously with... Big country, like I said, most people I've interviewed, especially these kind of indie bands from the the eighties, mostly it is five years, and then it is kind of, you know, seven eight years is really unusual. So a band like mm. Big Country is quite different in the sense that you you a you released so much more material, and b you yeah. kept going a bit longer than that normal, right? You know, the second album finished us, and most people have problem with record labels and management, and and the other yeah. thing is that people normally find they haven't made any money after. The about 10 years or five years and decide, well, actually... Well, that's true. You know, yeah, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you in. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, again, we didn't plan to be around this long. It's, it's almost the other way around. It's like we don't want to let go of something we know is good, you know. Um, now, it's very different now because uh, although we have put out a single and put out an album, you know, about four years ago, it didn't really make much of a dent because the music industry has changed so much, as most people will tell you. Most of the people that have been around um, now, it's all about getting out there live and, you know, getting the music out there, you know, because of the internet and free downloads. It's not the same as it was. Recording studios are shut down. People will, people will record at home and uh, everyone plays guitar now and drums, you know, people learn out of school. So it's a very different music industry now. So for us, having such a big catalogue, um, which is, is a big catalogue with greatest hits and a few albums people haven't even heard of we've done, you know, are kind of a bit off the radar, um, we had some stuff out on track records and um, B-sides have been really good. You know, the fans love that. And with our history, it's, it seems to be the way forward for us is, is dare I say, is at the moment, it's not to say we won't always be like they will always be like this, but we're kind of a heritage band because we have a heritage and the back catalogue uh, and a rich, vast catalogue to, to kind of base ourselves from live. Yeah. And I know that if we do anything too obscure... The old fan may like it, there's a diehard, but most people want to hear the hits and they want to hear the songs off the big albums. So what we do is we, we're doing the anniversary of different albums as, as those anniversaries crop up. You know, we're off to Australia in March and New Zealand and we're doing, you know, they, they were starved of seeing the band. We never really got out there until a few years ago. So we're going to be playing The Crossing in its entirety out in Australia and New Zealand because they've never heard it played live. Um, so that's a good thing for us to do. And, you know, what last thing we want to do is suddenly write a new album and tour a new album when, you know, we don't really feel we're in that position to need to do that. Right but it's, it's interesting you mentioned heritage bands because, you know, it, mm. I mean, on one level, I don't think that sounds like a bad thing, but I could imagine some people thinking, mm. well, it's just a nostalgia act. But at the same time, you know, when you look at the Rolling Stones, I mean, in a way, they, they are the ultimate heritage heritage. Yeah. Heritage band, and we love it, you know, because you know, as even though they're occasionally tempted to put out a new album, and they're kind of sensible in the sense that they often just do covers of blues numbers rather than mm. trying to write too much themselves. I mean, that's what people really want to see, and if they do want to put an album out, that's fine. But as long as they don't expect to tour or do a world tour, yeah, on that, you know, yeah. we had an experience of this with with the great David Bowie. You know, we supported them on the Glass Spider tour. And the, the, the most noticeable thing about that tour was, because, you know, a legend that Bowie is, we all love David Bowie, and, you know, the, the gigs were huge. But he didn't go down too well. You know, it's famously, he hated that tour. It's not me just saying that. He said it himself. Yes. He hated, he hated that Glass Spider tour. But there was one thing that everyone realized about the Glass Spider tour that from the moment was that he didn't hardly play any of his hits. He had a new album he was promoting, and the set that he played didn't have any of the big hits, that, uh, one or two, but it was very, very, pretty much 90% of new songs. 
And as much as it's great to hear new songs and it's David Bowie, how great is that? People wanted to hear those yes. things, you know. And I think it, you know, it was a lesson learned by a lot of the people that when you go out, you know, you've got to, you've got to, the public are paying money to, to, to hear you. And as much as they like the fact you're doing new stuff, they want to hear the great, the great yes. songs that you had in the charts and how they fondly remember you back in the day, you know. Well, it's interesting because I sort of yeah. was obsessed with the Bowie thing. So I went to see him on the Serious Moonlight, which obviously the, he had the Let's Dance album, which was good, but he yeah, played a lot of hits. Yeah, big album, yeah. And then I saw him on the Glass Spider tour and it was just dreadful because they had all that um, kind of weird dance stuff going on that's right um, from tony basil and her dance troupe which was all a bit strange <laughs> yeah, and, and there was some very odd things and then there was pete townsend uh, pete frampton on guitar and mm-hmm. it was all and he was a bit out of you know he was kind of with his i heard that he had that whole glass spider that it was under that big framework of a big spider wasn't it the stage yes he burned it in australia that, didn't he yeah he had it <laughs> on fire yes he hated it so, <laughs> so much he hated it so much and you know that still resonates with a lot of bands that story particularly us as we were on that tour and it's yes. like well you know when when we do the when we do we do the revival shows which are big shows now you know there's a hell of a lot of people at these shows and and i'm not surprised because the 80s had good songs and people you know i think it takes you need you know it's a certain generation where you have nostalgia about where you were at that time when that song was played and you have good yeah. memories and people like to escape from reality and i respect that yes. um but those big shows have like nick Kershaw and nick haywood and tony hadley and all kinds of bands from that time you know yeah including us and you know it's huge it, they love to hear the big hits so when we do those shows we make sure that we give them all our hits as well as the secondary hits, you know, we have a completely different mindset when we do those. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, there's some so many examples because I know watching Bowie a few more times. You know, I saw him at Glastonbury in 2000. He just played basically two hours of his greatest hits, which was great. And when he mm. brought out Reality and Heathen, I saw it on that tour. That must have been Reality. And again, he played a couple of tracks from those albums, which were good tracks, but mostly it was his greatest hits with a few mm. and. And most of us did sort of enjoy those albums, but um, he he definitely got his set list better. But it's interesting because I remember sort of going to, I bizarrely got to Live Aid and and most people realised that you play your four best hits, apart from Adam Ant. Mm. (laughs) He went out and tried to plug his new sort of solo album. And and it's like, God, Adam, if you'd just done your best three or four songs, we'd have loved you, Mm. but not your new single. That was just not... Exactly, you know. (laughs) I think think you you please a limited limited audience. You know, if you look on Facebook and stuff, you say, why don't Big Country do new music? But actually, if you look at those comments, there's not many that say that. It's only the few that, you know, want to feel that the band's still where it was and we're still writing new music, which, you know, we actually are writing new music. We just haven't released it yet. We've got stuff in the can and we've got ideas going on. We still have the think tank. So it's never say never, but um, the priority really is to, um, you know, we're we're we're, we're kind of a, a t- we don't just tour, we tour constantly throughout the whole year. So you know, it's changed from doing you know three months on the road and you get you get three weeks off or a month off, then you go into rehearse and you go into do this for demos. That whole that whole cycle has changed. You know, we're pretty much out working most weekends around the UK or Europe or, um, you know, playing sets the smaller places getting the music out there and in in looks and crannies of the uk where years ago we would never even ventured out there so it's a very different dynamic but it's still very enjoyable and the gigs are getting bigger and bigger you know we're doing bigger shows again um and there's a there's like a new groundswell i've noticed of of new people coming to check us out you know we've seen that happen um and it's growing again you know there's another generation coming out to check us out other musicians coming just out the oddity of seeing the band if they've never seen it before, you know. Yeah, well, so I think it, that it, that's the key, isn't it? If you can not just get the old men like me, but they're you know they're <laughs> like, children, me. like me, you know. But it's the next generation who think actually that's fine. I can I can cope without you know several of the members as long as there's a core and they're doing what they want. Because actually, when when the the tribute band started which was a long time ago, you know, I was a bit sniffy about it. But now the, some of the tribute bands I've gone to see, you know, out of curiosity, I'm like, oh, they're OK. Mm. And they don't have any of the original members. So if you've that's got, true. if you basically got most of the original members, you know, mm. I think you have to go, well, that's good enough for me at the moment. And, well, um, it's, it's the best you'll get. You know, we can't get to, to you know, yes. the thing I've always, again, sorry to cut you in, what always 
gets me is when the bands are able to get together, but politics prevents it, but they're still all alive, and you could actually put them in the room and wave a magic wand and say, right, go out as an original band. But politics don't allow that. Now, we can't do that with Big Country, which when fans say, oh, it's not the same without Stuart, we can't get him back. <laughs> we either stop or you don't get any big, you know, you either yeah. get what you get is the nearest you'll ever get or, or it's nothing, you know. Yes. Um, now, you know, when, and it's, I don't mean it as a literal example, but just it probably doesn't explain it that well, but just to name some names, it's like, you know, Fish, not in Marillion, Marillion yes. go out and fit, you know, uh, Paul Weller not playing with From the Jam, you know, from, on the jam. Um, you know, they're great. Although I must say, From the Jam are absolutely fantastic. I was with them for quite a while, and Russell does an, an incredible job, I must say. Russell Hastings is a great songwriter and singer, along with Bruce Foxton. I mean, really dear friends of mine. Yeah. But it's just the fact that, you know, the jam won't ever reform, you know. Um, and, it, you know, there's a few bands where all the members are still alive, and it's a very unique thing, you know, because life throws these things and people disappear mm. and um you know it's, it's so special if you have that opportunity to do that because a lot of bands don't including ourselves yes um you know um and that's why i always find it you know the comments of which i do respect you know if, if stuart's not in the band i won't go to see them well that's fine you'll <laughs> never hear us again you know? yes it's, it's, it suits me but i think it's um it's it's it doesn't need to be like that because people need to understand that we can't get Stuart back, you know. Yeah. Um, so what it, would you... Life, life goes on. It does, know? it does. Why well, I always liked, I think it was, um, if I got this right, I think In Excess, who obviously lost their lead singer, and then they, mm -hmm. they thought, you know, obviously the rest of the band were thinking, well, OK, that's the end of the band, and then realised, well, actually, that's a bit, that's a bit sort of silly because we're all alive and we all still want to do mm -hmm. it. So they just sort of found... The singer of a tribute in excess band to say, look, yeah, you know, well, you, often, they're yeah. often the best ones to get because yeah. they're so dedicated. But you know, one thing we always say, well, I, I say it, we don't always say it, but I'll say it now is that when you come to see Big Country, you know, nobody's trying to be Stuart, but what you are getting, you're hearing Big Country, the nearest you'll hear it, but you're also celebrating Stuart's lyrics and words and music. Yes, absolutely. You know, you're, you're celebrating Stuart Adamson um, in what, he's, what, what the songs are, you know, what he's saying. You know, it, 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 you're still, you still get a little bit of Stuart there, obviously, because there is words, you know, and a lot of them are his songs. Yes. And what so would it's you... a celebration of his music uh, alongside ours, so we still kind of feel his spirits there when we do this for that very reason, you know? Well, absolutely. God, that is that's so true. What would you say to your 18-year-old self? Because obviously you've got a huge amount of experience and, and an incredible back catalogue and uh, body of work. What would I say to, sorry? Yeah, so if you, if you sort of were to say to your 18-year-old self, well, you know, if you, yeah, what would you say to your 18-year-old self if you bumped into him backstage, you know, now? You know, what, what advice would you give an 18-year-old, basically, starting out in music? Um, yeah, well, first and foremost, I would say be original. Um, you know, be, try and do something that's, that's different to what, what you normally hear so that you stand out um but but also really don't give up when we never gave up you know we're still playing now it's very easy to you know there's so many people vying for the same position that everyone wants to be famous you know all the programs are out there from x factor onwards to whatever we never really wanted to be famous for, we, we were a band and we wanted success as a band you know to have our songs appreciated and the drumming appreciated rather than any fame whatsoever we weren't fame seekers to that extent it was acceptance of the music um and if fame comes along then that's that so be it but um it was being accepted by people listening and liking the music that's the gratification we get um and, and also the response you know making it a shared moment like Stuart always said you know the passion's there you know we had a whole thing with songs that if the songs didn't feel right, and it was, it was a very personal thing within the band, if, we, if we'd written a new song t separately or together and we heard it back and it didn't feel right, somebody was not sure about it, it didn't, it didn't get any further because the spirit had to be right. Everyone had, and everyone had to be, it feels right for the right reasons. Um, and for a young person, I would just say, you know, hang on to your dreams um, and you know, don't give up because you'll get lots of knocks. And if you really want to do it, you've got to do it full time. You have to dedicate yourself. You cannot expect to be, um, you know, successful in the music business without giving it your full, full 
full 24 hour 20 24 7 efforts you know mm. that's what it needs that dedication and not everyone's got the capabilities the finances all the time to do that so most people fall by the wayside but you know if you're very dedicated and you are genuinely talented i think the cream always rises as top eventually you know so you know and the other thing is is don't aim your heights too high because getting out there and playing and living as a musician is what it's all about you know if you're if you're earning money and you're playing your music at the end of the day you know you've got a paid hobby and it mm. can be nothing better than not thinking you know most people that go to work dream of playing in the evening and they take go you know they go home and they go and play locally and they don't get paid and they're still happy you know but to be able to get paid and to make it a living you know without you know obviously aim for the stars you may hit the top of the trees not to take that away but but if you're earning money and living your life socially as a musician, it's a great life to be in. You know, you don't need to set your sights so high that anything short of that means you have to give up. And that was uh, me in conversation with Mark Brzezicki, drummer of Big Country and a lot of other bands as well. A huge thank you to Mark for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall. This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. Always keep it nice, positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Life's too short and then you die. And also, I've been podcasting all these uh, shows for the last three years. There's a huge amount. Click nearly getting up to 150 to 200. So any indie band you ever want to hear, do check it out. And that's C86 Show. You can find that on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. We love that one. And Mixcloud. So there you go. Check it out. It's going to blow your mind. This, unfortunately to quote Jim Morrison, is the end, but there'll be more interviews to come. Anyway, have a great week, and this is going to be some more Big Country. Big Country.